James chapter 1. I'll be reading the first 18 verses. This is God's word. Please give it your full attention. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the 12 tribes in the dispersion, greetings. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. But let him ask in faith, with no doubting, for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation, because like a flower of the grass he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass, its flower falls and its beauty perishes. So also will be the rich man, so also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. At our session meeting this past week, the elders were sitting around the table and talking about this plan we have this fall for this sermon series, this two-month series in the book of James, and then for each small group, small group Bible study in the church to be meeting that following week to talk about it, dig deeper. And, and uh, as we were talking about it, one of the elders made a casual reference to the book of James as being popular mechanics for Christians. Yes, that was one of our engineers who said that. Maybe you don't even know popular mechanics. It's not as big now as it was. I know when I was a lot younger, it was a very popular magazine. Popular mechanics was a science magazine, a technology magazine, and it was mostly about how the machines, the gadgets, the inventions in our lives uh, operate, how they're put together, how they operate. And I looked it up. Uh, it does, I wanted to make sure it still exists. The magazine does still exist, and probably most people read it online. And the motto for popular mechanics is how the world works. And so when I thought of this elder calling James popular mechanics for Christians, I thought of that motto and I thought, you know, that really is the theme that ties all of the book of James together. The theme is, how does true faith work? 
How does true faith in Jesus Christ work? And as we work our way through the book of James, you're going to see there's a lot of contrast between what true faith does as opposed to what false faith does. And there's a lot of teaching in James about hypocrisy. But the theme that ties it together is this idea of how does faith work? Keep that in mind as you do your studies through the book of James. There are a lot of different topics in the book of James. And I think it's sometimes it's hard to see. It seems like James will flip from topic to topic very quickly and very easily, and it's hard to catch the connection. But it's that idea that if your faith in Jesus Christ is real, then it's going to transform the way you think. It's going to transform the emotions, the, the heart attitudes that you have. And as a result of that, it's going to change the way you live, the choices you make, the actions you take. Most people know that the book of James is really different from the other New Testament books, if you know anything about the New Testament in the Bible. Everybody thinks of James, you think of practical, practical Christian living, very much doctrine in the book of James. Well, at least it seems like there's not much doctrine in the book of James. You think of Paul. When Paul wrote his New Testament epistles, he tends to write for chapters upon chapters of deep, profound, biblical doctrine. Deep truths about who Jesus Christ is. Deep truths about the cross and atonement and salvation, redemption. And then he gets to the end of his epistle and then he spends a chapter or two or three or four giving practical advice based on that. And so with Paul, the Apostle Paul, it tends to be believe this and then live this way in light of it. But when you come to the book of James, it's, as you read through it, it's all do this, do this, do this, do this. And so I think unfortunately it's gotten the reputation of being an undoctrinal book, but it's not true. I've seen that in a, in a whole new light, in a deeper way as I begin to work my own way through the book of James. When James talks about faith, you have to understand that he's not talking about faith in the same way that our culture talks about faith. The way our culture talks about faith, it's almost it's like it's not really, it doesn't have a lot of content to it. It's just about an attitude of the heart. It's about a, 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 a trust, but it's very vague about what you're actually trusting in. But when the Bible talks about faith, there's a lot of content to that faith. Very specific very deep, very profound content to what you're believing. And that's what James is assuming here. This is content that we believe because God has revealed it to be true. God has revealed truth to us in his word. We have truth from God. And this book that he has given us, the Bible, is all about the ultimate revelation of his truth, which came to us in his son, Jesus Christ, that all of this word points to, the one that this word points to. So God has revealed truth to us in his word, and that word points to the ultimate truth, who is Jesus Christ, and what he has done for us. And that becomes the content of our faith. Think for a minute about who James was and who he's talking to. Of course, James was, the we call him the brother of our Lord, but he was technically the half-brother of our Lord because God the Father in heaven was the father of Jesus. 
and Mary was his earthly, his human mother, but God the Father was his ultimate father. But then James was born later to Mary and Joseph, her earthly husband, and so James was a younger half-brother, so to speak, of Jesus. He grew up with him, didn't actually believe in Jesus until after Jesus' earthly ministry. The scriptures tell us that Jesus, in, after his resurrection from the dead, appeared to James, and then James believed. And what's interesting then, as you follow James through the book of Acts, you find out that James became the prominent leader of the church in Jerusalem, the ultra-important church in Jerusalem. James was the leader of that church, as, as even among the apostles, the, other, the actual apostles of Christ, James becomes a prominent leader of the church in Jerusalem. But then you look at who James is writing to, and this is what you have to remember to understand what James is trying to accomplish in this, in this letter. He says in verse 1 that he's writing to the 12 tribes in the dispersion. In other words, he's writing to Jewish Christians, not Jewish people, all people who are ethnically Jew, but particularly Jewish Christians, people who were raised Jewish and then came to believe that Jesus Christ was the Messiah promised in the Old Testament. And so therefore, they're Jewish Christians. But he adds the 12 tribes that are in dispersion. They've been scattered. And what he's referring to there is that if you know the book of Acts, what happened was that Stephen, one of the deacons of the early church, was martyred. And after his martyrdom, it says in Acts chapter 7, that the church was persecuted in Jerusalem. And the Christians, Jewish Christians at this point, from Jerusalem were scattered throughout the Roman Empire. And so these are the, the particular audience that, J, that James is writing to. These are people that he, many of them he knew personally, that he had shepherded, he pastored himself in the Jerusalem church. And these were refugees, people who were scattered by persecution. They had given up their homes, they would given up their lands, they would given up their possessions, they would given up their jobs. And they were scattered, and undoubtedly, most of them living in poverty in other parts of the Roman Empire. These are important things to remember when you read what James is saying. But for today's message, which I want you to realize, is that James, as a Jewish Christian, is writing to Jewish Christians who knew the Old Testament. They had studied the writings of the prophets. They understood the covenant of grace. They understood how Christ fulfilled the promises of the Old Testament. They were trained not only under James, but under the apostles. They knew the gospel. They knew scripture well. And so when he writes, he doesn't have to do what Paul had to do, which when he wrote most of his epistles, he's writing to Gentiles who didn't have this Old Testament background, had not been taught these things in depth. And so Paul has to write a lot about basic doctrine, profound but basic foundational doctrine. James is assuming doctrine. This is where I want you to hold on to this as we think about this study in chapter one. He's assuming that those who are reading his letter or hearing his letter read in church know scripture. They know the word of God. They know what we would call biblical doctrine. And that's what their faith was based in. You see, everybody has a faith. People may say, I don't have a faith. No, you have a faith. Everybody trusts in something or someone. You can't live without having faith in someone, something or someone. And it, what we believe to be true about 
ourselves, about this physical world, about the spiritual realm, what we believe to be true about these things determines how we think and therefore how we feel and therefore how we act, the decisions that we make in life. We're talking about a worldview. When we talk about faith, we're actually talking about what's your worldview? What do you believe is true about everything around you, about yourself, about God? It determines how you act. And it's an obvious truth then that the more true the content of your faith is, there are a lot of false faiths out there, people who believe things that are just plain wrong. It's all around us. And the more true you, the facts are, the things that you believe in, the better choices you're going to make, the better your life will be. That's just plain truth. So here, that's the background, the book of James. And I hope that we understand how these disparate teachings all come together. He's talking about what, how truth, faith in Jesus Christ works. What does it do based on what scripture has revealed to be true? What Jesus Christ has revealed to be true about God and about us and about salvation. So we come to chapter 1. And chapter 1, in this chapter, what James is trying to communicate to us is that what we believe about God will determine how we respond to the trials that we encounter in life. What we believe about God will determine how we respond to trials and suffering. This timing, of course, in James chapter 1 couldn't be better for me personally. As most of you know, and has been referred to, uh, thankfully, in, in uh, Chris's prayer earlier, it was only two weeks ago that my daughter's life was in great danger when she had a very difficult and complicated uh, delivery of her newborn son. And she lost a lot of blood. We feared for her life, and then very quickly feared when we found out that the baby actually was dead when he was born. He wasn't breathing, he was, his heart wasn't beating, but after about seven minutes they were able to resuscitate him. And um, he's been in the NICU, the NICU in Pittsburgh ever since. We thought we lost him about five days later. Uh, the doctors and nurses were preparing uh, my daughter and her husband and all of us for the fact that he didn't look like he was coming out of the sedation, didn't look like he was going to uh, make it through the recovery process and we were grieving deeply but then suddenly he began to respond and thankfully he's been responding gradually uh, developing a little bit every day uh, he's breathing on his own now he's learning how to eat on his own uh, developing the ability to control his body temperature on his own these are milestones he has to reach but they're talking now about when he might be able to reach these and go home to be with his mom his dad and his family in the midst of all that, there were a lot of long and dark hours waiting in hospital rooms, and I know many of you know what those hours in hospital rooms feel like. Many, many of those hours, we just had nothing to do but think about this all, and I eventually wanted to share an update with the church, and so I put a post on the church Facebook in case you saw it, and there was one sentence in that update that I wrote, and again, you're kind of in the midst of it, you're not thinking clearly, but one sentence I remembered writing, and I went back to check it later, was, this is what I wrote, waiting for answers is difficult, but we know for certain that the Lord is sovereign, faithful, and good, and that's enough for now. The Lord is sovereign, faithful, 
and good, and that's enough for now. What's funny is I, as I came back, I sit down, finally the distractions cleared enough, and I was able at the beginning of this week to sit down and really dig into chapter one. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. And I looked at that, and I began to see that suffering and perseverance was certainly a strong theme in chapter one, but boy, there's a lot of different topics in chapter one and these first 18 verses and I said to somebody it's like five sermons worth of material here how how am I going to tie this all together well that's when I began to see that James is basing his instructions about what true faith looks like in when it faces suffering he's making some very profound assumptions about doctrine about who God is and what I found amazingly That's why I went back to check what I had written because it sounded so familiar. He basically is saying to Christians when you face trials of many kinds, he's saying you need to be reminded that God is sovereign, that God is faithful, and that God is good. Let's look at each one of these individually. Each section, I think, falls into those categories. First of all, true faith, James says, stands firm in trials because God is sovereign. Look at verse 2. Two is a very provocative command that he gives to Christians. He says, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. Now that's the kind of verse that when unbelievers hear us say that or quote that to one another, they mock us. And they say, yeah, yeah, typical Christians, you know, slap a plastic smile on your face when you go through a hard time when life stinks. You know, just smile and pretend everything's okay. That's what you Christians do. But James isn't talking about the expression on our face here, is he? He says, count it all joy. The word in the original language means to consider it a joyful opportunity. Regard it, think of it as an opportunity for joy. He's talking about how we think, not about how we feel. How do you think about your circumstances? He says, count it all joy. You see, when you face, and and literally the language there is not when you meet a trial, but it's it's actually some translations as you, when you fall into trials of various kinds, because it, it really has that thing. Nobody plans for this, sudden, unexpected. How do you think about it? The question everybody, no matter what your faith, the content of your faith is, the question everybody has to answer is, when you face some kind of suffering, where is God in all this? Is God in all this? Who is God in the midst of all this? Well, you see what James, how James answers that question. And again, you have to look behind what he's saying, but understand the doctrine about who God is that's behind what he says. He says in verse 3, For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. The testing of your faith. That's what he calls suffering. Suffering is the testing of your faith for a believer. Tests aren't accidents. Christians are never the victims of circumstances. A test is an opportunity sovereignly administered by God to exercise your faith. 
to learn by experience what you believe in your head is true. And when true faith, not false faith, but when true faith is tested by trials, it becomes stronger, it becomes more constant, it becomes what James calls steadfast. And don't ever undervalue the importance of steadfastness in your faith. We may take that lightly, but scripture doesn't. Steadfastness is crucial to our faith. And James is saying that it comes through the endurance of trials. Every trial that we go through is a test. A test has intentionality behind it. A test doesn't happen by accident. A test is planned by an authority. A test is prepared carefully. And a test is administered sovereignly. You see, too many Christians think that the way God and suffering works is that Satan messes with our lives or accidents happen and we suffer and we're hurting and then God shows up in a big way. But what James is saying is, no, God was there from the very beginning. God didn't just show up when you started to suffer. God had this as part of his plan before the foundation of the world. You see, we think of life that it's supposed to be some pleasant walk through the park on a sunny day, but according to scripture, life for the believer is an obstacle course, a well-planned obstacle course that we are asked to run with persistence and faith. Remember Job, probably the most famous sufferer in all of scripture, and probably one of the greatest sufferers of all time. I, I think God put Job in scripture so none of us could ever say, nobody's ever suffered like I have. <laughs> Nobody could ever say that in Job's presence. He lost his family. He lost his livestock. He lost his home. He lost his health. He lost everything. And he kept, you know, if you kind of filter out, I mean, the book of Job is long, and, and a lot of it's how his friends respond to his suffering, but just filter that out and look at how Job responds to his suffering. And if you had to summarize in just a phrase how Job responds to this catastrophic suffering that God asked him to go through, it comes down to, why me? Why me, God? I was serving you faithfully. Why me? And so you wait patiently to the end of the book for God to finally speak and answer his questions. And God never answers his question. He never tells him why him. He never says why now. He never said how, why so hard. Remember how God responds at the end of the book of Job? He says, I'm sovereign. I was here from the beginning. I created all things. I oversee all things. All things happen according to my will. Job, you need to trust me. That's what Job needed to hear. He needed to trust that God was sovereign. That God was in control. This was no accident. That God had laid this difficult obstacle course before him. I'm sure you've had that moment sitting along somebody in a hospital room or a waiting room. They're hurting, 
bad news they've just received and you want to comfort them. What do you say? And had a lot of those moments as I sat beside my daughter and my son-in-law over the last couple of weeks. One of the things that I shared with them was I said, you know, the waiting is going to be hard and it may take months or years before they know if there's any long-term effects to what their baby son has gone through. As you're waiting, just understand you're waiting to find out what God's calling is upon your life. God has a good calling for you. He's going to call you to be a parent to this child. And you don't know if that's a, to be a parent. They, they have an older son, you know, a two-year-old son. So is that to be a parent of two very active, healthy, normal boys running around being normal boys? Or maybe there's going to be some special challenges with Judah down the road because of what he's been through. But if it happens... It's God's calling upon your life. You need to embrace it and trust him. You know, Jesus Christ, when he was in the Garden of Gethsemane, you know, he counted it all joy that the Father asked him to go to the cross to die for our sins. But he didn't rejoice in suffering. There's no way that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, could rejoice in the idea of bearing the wrath that our sins deserve, the eternal wrath of God against our sins. There's no way he rejoiced in the experience of suffering. But you know where his heart was? By what he said to the Father in his prayer. He said, may this cup pass from me. If there's any way that I would not have to go through this suffering, let this cup pass from me. But not my will be done, but your will be done. And there's where you get the sovereignty of God. He trusted in the Father's will. And it was the Father's will that he suffer. And he rejoiced because he trusted in the Father's will. Verses 5 to 8 fall under the same idea of trusting that God is sovereign. If you accept the fact by faith that the suffering that you're going through, whatever it is, if you accept that this is a test that God had planned for you from before the foundation of the world, if you accept that this is a test, then the question comes, how do I pass the test? And I think that's what verses 5 through 8 are about. You need a gift from God. You can't do it. You cannot. You do not have the resources to endure this trial by faith. You need God to give you a gift. And what is that gift? If any of you lacks wisdom... Let him ask of God, who gives generously without reproach. A few years ago, we did a study through the book of Proverbs, and I remembered that we tried to compile a, a one basic definition for wisdom, because wisdom is such an important idea in the book of Proverbs. What is wisdom according to God, according to his word? And this was, I went back and looked it up. This is the definition that we put together in our study in Proverbs, that wisdom is skill in applying God's word to your circumstances so that you will make good choices that lead to God-honoring results. That's biblical wisdom. I'll read it for you again. Skill in applying God's word to your circumstances so that you can make good choices that will lead to God-honoring results. So that definition in this context of facing various kinds of trials and suffering leads you to pray this way. Lord, Based on what I believe to be true about who you are, help me to navigate these difficult waters so that I end up where you want me to be. 
You see, and the neat thing about the prayer for wisdom that James says here, you know, a lot of prayers. We've, we've prayed for a lot of things in the last couple of weeks for, our, for this precious little child. And when you're suffering, you pray. You pray for more health. You pray for more money. You pray for, for healing and relationships. You pray for a lot of things. But there's no guarantee that God is going to say yes to any of those prayers. There's no guarantee. But James gives us a guarantee on this one. When you're suffering and you need to endure this and, and pass this test from God, you need to ask God for wisdom. And what does James say? He gladly, generously answers that prayer. He will give you the wisdom because he's, basically God's going to be saying, you got it. You understood why you're here. You understand where this is going. You see, again, like Jesus Christ, our joy, we count it joy not because we're going to have to suffer. No Christian rejoices in the experience of suffering, but we rejoice in the effect that God intends through this test of our faith. And what's the effect? Wisdom and its fruits in our life. That's the effect of suffering in the life of a true believer. Wisdom in its fruits. That's why James lays out for us the purpose of the test in verse 4. That you may be perfect and complete. That's New Testament language for spiritual maturity. For Christ-likeness. Or as the apostle says in Romans 5 verses 3 and 4. We rejoice in our sufferings. Knowing that suffering produces endurance and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. God is sovereign. There is intentionality behind every trial that we go through. It is a test to strengthen our faith, to increase our wisdom, that we might become spiritually mature, which means to become more like Jesus Christ. Second point that this chapter lays before us is that true faith in Jesus Christ stands firm because God is faithful. Not only is God sovereign, God is faithful. That's something you have to hold on to. It's like an anchor in when, when the seas get really rough in your life. Is that God keeps his promises. I challenge any of you to Come up to me after the service and tell me one promise that God has ever made that he's broken. God has never broken a promise. And Jesus Christ has promised us some pretty amazing things. He has given us new life. He has promised to always love us. He has promised to always be with us. He has promised to provide for every real need. He has promised to give us peace. He's promised to give us hope. And he's promised to give us eternal life in a perfected state, in a perfected new heavens and new earth, in the very presence of God forever. And if you embrace these promises by faith that Jesus Christ has given to us, that turns everything in your life upside down from the way you used to think. It turns your values upside down. That's what Jesus was talking about when he said in his kingdom, the first is last and the last is first. The least is greatest and the greatest is least. Or in this context, verses 9 through 11, 
He says, to be poor is to be exalted and to be rich is to be humiliated. It's a blessing to be poor if growth in faith and wisdom is really your goal in life, if that's your, you share the same goal that God has for your life. You see, I think a big reason why Christians really struggle when they fall into some kind of suffering is that they have to work through this phase where like, they feel like God broke a promise to them. God had promised them something and God didn't come through. But God never made any promise to us that our life would be easy. God never promised us that we'd be rich. God never promised us we'd be good looking. God never promised that we'd have great relationships in all aspects of our life. God didn't promise any of that to us. God has not broken a promise when we suffer. And there's nothing like suffering in the life of a believer to show us how temporary and trivial the things of this world are. The material things, wealth, and position, status, power, the things that this world holds up in such high value. Again, we have an upside down world according to the world's perspective because of what Christ has shown us and done in us. When we suffer, we very easily begin to see that these things that used to be, these earthly things, these material things, these earthly statuses, these things that were so important, so valuable to us, we see that they do quickly, in James' language, they wither, they fall, and they pass away. They're like the grass of the field and the flowers of the field, here today and gone tomorrow. Poverty, suffering, trials of many kinds teach us to depend upon the Lord. And that what the Lord offers to us is what's really important. And as we learn that and as we learn to be constant in that, no matter what our circumstances, we develop what the Bible calls steadfastness, perseverance. And it is of high value in the kingdom of God. And James brings us to that last promise that Christ has given us, the promise of eternal life. Look at verse 12. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life which God has promised to those who love him. See, James would have us in the midst of whatever dark tunnel you're going through. No matter how dark it is, no matter how long that tunnel is, stay focused on the bright light that God promises is at the end of it. You see, the believer has that. The unbeliever doesn't. There is always a brilliant, bright light at the end, this crown of eternal life that Christ has promised to those who trust in him. Let me read to you from the first chapter of 1 Peter, and you'll hear echoes of what James is trying to teach in this passage. Peter says to the church, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, 
may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. There are so many things that we don't know when we enter into that dark tunnel of suffering. So many things we don't know. Why me? Why now? Why so hard? How much harder is it going to get before it's over? God often doesn't answer. Sometimes he does, but most of the time he doesn't answer those questions. But what we do know, what we're certain of by faith, is that he will bring us through it. Because he has promised to. He who began a good work in you will complete it until the day of Christ Jesus. He is faithful. He has promised it. And he is able to do all that he has promised. Thirdly, not only is God sovereign and in control of all of your circumstances, especially the hard ones, but, and not only is he faithful to all his promises, but the last point that James wants to make for us is that God is good. That's what he's getting at in that last section, verses 13 through 18. He says, let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. You see what he's addressing there is a, temp a tendency that we have when we suffer to blame God. And he's playing off the fact that the word in Greek for tempted that he uses here in verses 13 through 18 is, a, is, a, is, the same, is a variation on the same word that he uses earlier for trial. So these trials, these tests that God has planned for us to strengthen our faith and increase our wisdom, that he understands that these are also not only the opportunities for your faith to succeed and to win and, and, and to grow and strengthen, but it's also an opportunity for failure. That in the trial and suffering, you can actually turn to doubt. And then, in doubt, turn to sin. And so that's what he's addressing. And he's making a very important theological point regarding the very nature of God, that God is good in his intentions and his sovereignty and his faithfulness in the trial. He's good. And we need to learn to trust the heart of God, no matter how dark our circumstances you may not understand what God is doing, but the one thing you know, no matter what you're going through as a believer, is that God is good. And you need to trust his heart. James goes on to say that, you know, if we sin, the temptation to sin does not come from God. And it's interesting, we would want to talk about Satan here, because he talks about seducing, enticing someone to sin. And so we want to do that. It's like, well, the devil made me do it. I, I sinned because Satan was just so crafty, so powerful in that situation. But James won't let you go there. He doesn't mention Satan at all. We know that Satan is involved. He's the one who's actually tempting. So that's the difference between testing and tempting. God tests us to strengthen us, to see us succeed, to grow us. But Satan, in the same situation, will be tempt attempting to entice us to doubt, to unbelief, and to sin. That's Satan's intention. But James doesn't even mention Satan. He says, you need to understand that if you didn't have evil desires within you, Satan couldn't appeal to anything. That the real birth of sin is in the heart because we are sinners from birth and 
even though we've been cleansed and forgiven of our sin, that sin nature is still there and the desire is within you. So when we fall, when we fail the test, when we fall into doubt and sin, don't blame God because God's good. James wants us to focus on the goodness of God when we suffer. That's why in verse 17 he says, Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights. God only gives good gifts to his children. Nothing that God has given you, nothing that God is doing in your life, nothing he's given you, even suffering itself, ultimately is evil or bad because God makes it a good thing. And the best gift that God has ever given us is the suffering of his own son. That's the best gift that God has ever given us. The cross of Jesus Christ. Because even for believers, when you start to suffer, one of the hardest things to realize is that you are not suffering as punishment for your sins. Even believers will feel that sometimes. That God must be mad at me. God's punishing me because of some sin in my life. That's why I'm going through the suffering. But because of the cross, we know for certain that he's not punishing us. Because God never punishes a sin twice. God punished all our sins when Christ died in our place and was punished for us on the cross. So for the believer, your suffering is never punishment from God. It may be discipline from God, like the discipline of a father trying to teach you, to test you, to teach you, to help you grow in your faith, but it's never punishment like a judge. We can trust in the goodness of God, and the gospel is the guarantee that God is good towards us. As James goes on to say, there's no variation or shadow due to change with God. God not only is good, he never changes. All the things he gives, all the things he does are ultimately good gifts of his grace and that includes our trials. And that's true not just today but in the future. I know a lot of Christians are wrapped up with anxiety because they fear trials in the future. But if God is good and God never changes, then you don't need to fear trials in the future. He'll be there. He'll be sovereign, he'll be faithful, and he'll be good in the future just like he is today. You don't need to fear whatever he may ask you to go through in the future. I received an insight into what faith looks like and a much lighter example of suffering in my family life. Back when my oldest daughter, Leah, was about eight or nine years old, I was uh, taking her to the dentist, and we lived in the suburbs of Philadelphia, and that particular dentist was a behemoth of a man. He was like six foot five, 350 pounds, built like a linebacker. He scared me when he would work on me. And so when I put my little skinny eight or nine-year-old daughter in that dentist chair, which looks like an instrument of torture in and of itself, and then this giant of a man comes with a big long needle for Novocaine and that big drill in his hand and he cowers over her. For a father, that's unnerving. And I thought, how is she ever going to get through this? And I was amazed. I sat there, I stood across the room, and I, I, I watched her. She was at peace. She was quiet. She was trusting. She let him stick that needle in her gums. He, she let him drill that tooth. She let him put the filling in. She, 
She was fine. I was amazed at that. How could she trust him like that? And then it dawned on me, she didn't trust him. She was looking at me the whole time. She never took her eyes off of me the whole time she was sitting there. She trusted me. She's sitting there thinking in so many words, my dad is in control here. My dad is faithful to me. He's proven himself faithful to me. And my dad is good. So if I'm in this chair, I trust my dad. There's a purpose. It's a good purpose. And I praise him for it. I thought of that when I was sitting in the waiting room, wondering what's going to happen with my daughter and my grandson. And I had that same thought go through my head. My God is sovereign. My God is faithful to his promises. My God is so good. And my daughter and my grandson are in his hands. Let's pray. Father, it's hard to thank you for suffering, but scripture would challenge us to reckon our circumstances in that way, to consider suffering as an opportunity to depend upon you, to deepen our faith in you, to see the world as you see it, to be filled with wisdom from your word and your spirit, and to become more like Jesus Christ. Help us to keep that perspective, even for those of us that aren't suffering right now. Help us to have that perspective when we fall into various kinds of trials, because we know they're coming, and we aren't going to worry about it. Because you're sovereign, you're faithful, and you're good. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.